All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to get there in uh, just a minute. 1 Thessalonians 5. I hate to be predictable this weekend, but we are talking about uh, having joy and being thankful, okay? So I hate to be predictable on you guys this weekend, but that is what we uh, are talking about. I'm like afraid I'm going to hit this thing, and you guys know me. I get a little animated up here. If you see some microphones start flying, just ignore that. Um, but uh, we were talking about this idea of rejoicing and uh, giving thanks. And it is the weekend before Thanksgiving, so I'm sure between your Facebook thread um, and also your church this weekend, you're going to have your fill on this topic. And if you don't know what I, I'm talking about when I mentioned Facebook, this whole month people have been doing these 24 things that we're thankful for, 25 or who knows, but uh, a lot of thankfulness going on on Facebook. And on one hand, I'm really like thankful for that, that people are thankful, but on the other hand, it's kind of annoying. Uh, I just need to not go on Facebook because sometimes I get mad on there. But uh, we are, it is this topic of rejoicing and thankfulness uh, that we talk about today. So we all get this idea of rejoicing and being thankful. We've all had times of rejoicing. We've all had moments and times when we're thankful. We just experienced a a moment like that together as a church. But uh, usually uh, celebration and gratitude in life are circumstantial, right? And we see this in our lives that we are thankful and we're uh, celebratory, but oftentimes it's very circumstantial. Uh, This is very easy to see in the world of sports. Uh, Celebrating and being thankful in the world of sports and in that realm is very, very circumstantial. And so sometimes in sports, some things are worth celebrating, like an overtime win after the longest game in Bears history. Uh, that is a time to rejoice. That is a time to celebrate. That is a time when your starting rookie right guard jumps into the stands and your campus pastor is on the left there uh, with big red beard and is slapping the right guard celebrating a Bears victory. So uh, my brother-in-law Brad is right next to me. And I don't know if you noticed this white little hood in between the guy with the blue poncho right above Kyle Long there. That white little hood is my like five foot three sister-in-law. And she totally got just blocked out of uh, the whole scene there. But uh, last week, I didn't want to tell you guys, but uh, as soon as I said, in Jesus' name, amen, I booked it for the van. Uh, My wife dropped me off at Soldier Field right in the middle of the worst of the storm. Um, I was soaked within 20 seconds, and I went in to uh, endure the rest of the game there. Uh, So I had to work that in the sermon somehow. You guys, I had to, right? Had to, absolutely had to. So sometimes some things are worth celebrating, Uh, Sometimes as fans, especially in Chicago, we don't celebrate. We're not thankful. Like after a rebuilding year tacked on to a 100-year World Series drought. Or when your starting starting, uh, point guard of your basketball team goes down with his second season-ending injury in three years. There's no rejoicing there. Like I'm not excited about that. Some of you guys are like, what's going on? Yeah, D. Rose busted his other knee. And and I hate that because I love the Bulls. Um, but uh, rejoicing and gratitude in life like sports is often circumstantial, but God calls his children, God calls his church to a different approach to life. He calls us to a different approach to thankfulness, gratitude, and celebration. He calls his church to a countercultural approach 
to rejoicing and gratitude, one that's not dependent upon circumstances. And I will tell you that as the church, if we would be a thankful, uh, a a, a rejoicing, uh, hopeful, and happy people, we will stand out in this region, right? What is this region known for, right? It's just kind of, people are just kind of cold and surly, right? And just kind of life's rough, here in the region. Every guy we've hired from the south, which everyone's nice down in the south, has come up here to the region and uh, has been immediately has a culture shock, right? People are not nice out here. I hear that. They're not, they're not friendly. They're not inviting. It's like, well, go back to the south then because this is our region, you know? So, but it's good. It's helpful sometimes when someone from another culture comes in and notices things that sometimes we're just used to maybe life like this. I will tell you that it is not our culture. It is not our, it is not like the 219 to be rejoicing no matter the circumstance. So for the Christian, for those who know and have tasted the grace of God in Christ, a heart attitude of joy and gratitude ought to transcend our circumstances. Hear Paul's words this way, 1 Thessalonians 5. Go ahead and look at verses 16 to 18. We read this at the end of his letter to a people that he loved. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Some of you guys are like, man, I want to know what God's will is for my life. If you're here, you're a senior in high school. What is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? Where does he want me to go? Sometimes we think of God's will in terms of these big picture, big ticket items. But what we see here, Paul saying, God's will is very, very clear. He wants us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, to be relying upon him, and to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God. This is how he wants his people to live. This is the heart posture. Now, I will tell you that these Thessalonians, their circumstances were not good. This was a persecuted people. This was a a people that is going through massive persecution, difficult times for this young church um, there in that culture. And Paul writes to them regardless, and he says, rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. So let's ask this question. What place does rejoicing, worship, and thankfulness have in the life of the Christian? And we're going to see today that whether we're gathered for worship as worship as an event or whether we're scattered throughout our life as we go about just our normal everyday things, our normal everyday rhythms and patterns, no matter the circumstances and no matter the context, God's people ought to be marked by rejoicing and thankfulness. So we're talking about this idea of rejoicing and being thankful, and we're talking about it in two separate contexts. One, when we gather for a worship event, Okay, like here on Sunday when the church gathers and also when we scatter for a lifestyle. And so we see that worship is both a gathered event and it's a scattered lifestyle. And there's been some debate. Is, is worship a, a, when we come together and when we gather or, or is worship when we scatter and we are off into the rest of our days and our lives? And I would say it's both. It's both. We see both in Scripture. Worship is both a gathered event like today and we ought not have a low view of our gathered event. And what I'm, one of the most disheartening things that I am seeing among the church is the real low view that we often have of this time together. The real low view that sometimes we have of the gathered event, the church gathered on a Sunday. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
But worship is both a gathered event and a scattered lifestyle. So let's first take a look at worship as a gathered event. There's a lot of places that we can go uh, to do this, but since we laid a foundation in Nehemiah last week, let's go ahead and give some attention to uh, the book of Nehemiah. So go ahead and flip back over to Nehemiah. I don't have all of my uh, verses on the screen for us today, so you're going to have to do a little work today, okay? So flip those pages. Like We really kind of like make you guys lazy, right? We give you all the verses on the screen, uh, but today we're going to have to flip. So uh, get ready with that finger on the browse button on your app or whether it be flipping pages, whichever one. So we're going to be in Nehemiah. Um, the book of Nehemiah, again, I just want just for the sake of uh, just context and to, to remind us that the book of Nehemiah begins with uh, this guy, Nehemiah, getting news that the city that he was from, the city he loved was destroyed. The walls have been destroyed. The gates uh, have been burned. Um, the people of God have been scattered, even though there's been a couple of groups of exiles that have come back. Uh, they've sought to rebuild the city, and they have failed in the process. And Nehemiah gets news that the city is still destroyed, and the people have not been successful in reestablishing the people of Israel. And so Nehemiah, upon hearing that news, he immediately begins to weep, mourn, pray, and plan after hearing that news. Uh, I have a core group of guys that I meet with every single week. And this week we brought Nehemiah chapter 1 to the table where we saw this leader um, really weeping, praying to God on behalf of a people, on behalf of a city. And where there's decay and destruction, Nehemiah wanted to see worship and praise. And I posed that to our men and I said, men, what would it be like if we had the heart of Nehemiah? What would it be like if we had the heart of Nehemiah? One that, the one that cares about our city, one that cares about the people in the city, one that cares about our family, one that cares about our church. And we see Nehemiah weeping on behalf of a people. And what we discovered was this was so foreign to us. Why? Because we don't know what it's like to care for other people because we're very selfish. And in my core group of guys, we had this moment where we just repented of our selfishness. And we looked at Nehemiah, we let the word of God just be a mirror to us there. And it was a challenge to us as husbands, as, as dads, as uh, community members, and as church members as well. But we see Nehemiah doing this in chapter one. He weeps, he mourns, he prays, he plans to receive uh, after receiving this news. So the first glimpse we get of this man is a passionate man. He loves people, wants to see worship of God in place of decay and destruction and rather the separation and the effects of being separated from God. So Nehemiah's concern led him to spend the next three to four months praying, planning. And there was this moment in chapter two where he has this uh, little moment uh, in front of the king, King Artaxerxes. And he's uh, the leader of the Persians. It's the greatest entity, the most powerful entity in the world at that time. And King Artaxerxes says, why are you downcast? Why are you sad? And he tells the king, I should be sad because the place that I love, the place of my forefathers is just decimated right now. And the king says, what are you asking? And he says, King, give me time and give me resources to go rebuild the city. And here's this pagan king, this ungodly king, this king that does not worship the God of the people of Israel, gives Nehemiah an entire year off and all the resources he needs to go and build that wall along with permission because he needed the permission of the king as well. And this is just a huge moment. We see God at work in, in this plan and in this process. And so he gives Nehemiah all that he needs to go and rebuild that wall. And so the story of Nehemiah is the story of a man with God's heart 
with God's heart. He comes to the city he loves to rebuild the wall of the city and to restore the people of God so there would be life and worship instead of decay and destruction. Really, we see that God gave to Nehemiah the heart of Jesus for the city. The heart of Jesus. And we mentioned last week that it would be years later when Jesus himself would stand out on a hill and overlook that same city and weep just like Nehemiah wept. And we see the heart of God, the heart of Jesus in this man. And so he sets out to restore a city, restore a wall, but mostly to restore a people. God's people in the Old Testament were called to be a nation among other nations that submitted to God and worshipped him and worshipped him alone. They were to be an example to other nations. This is what life would look like if you had God as your king. This is what life would look like if you submitted to God. If you submitted to his loving rule and his loving reign. This is what what life and nation would look like if you had God as your king. And that was the purpose for for God's people in the Old Testament. That they would stand out among among other cultures. That they would stand out among other cities as a city within the world that has God as king. To be salt and light, if you will. Interesting that God has called his New Testament people, his church, to be the same. To be salt and light. And so the story of Nehemiah is not so much about the rebuilding of a wall, but the restoration of a people to God. Because they're scattered right now, and God brought that decimation to the city because of their idolatry. And God scattered that people and brought them into captivity and into exile because of their idolatry. And they would not repent and they harden their hearts and they stiffen their necks and they would not submit to God as king. And they would not worship him and him alone. They worship strange gods, false gods, created gods, not creator God. And we see that God brought this about. So Nehemiah has this heart. So it's not just the rebuilding of a wall, but the restoration of a people. The rebuilding of a people to worship and to submit and to return to God once again as king. And so the fact that Nehemiah is not just about rebuilding the wall is seen in the fact that the wall is finished in chapter 6. And we have seven more chapters to go, right? And the rebuilding of this people and the reestablishing of the worship and the primacy of worship and God as king starts in chapter 7. So I want to give you guys just a quick overview from the time that the wall's built in 6, from 7 all the way to 12, where we're going to camp out. I want to give you an overview of some of the things that Nehemiah gave himself to, to reestablish celebration, worship, and the kingliness of God among those people. First is this, as soon as the wall is rebuilt, news spreads to God's people who are scattered, and they begin to return. News goes out, return. Something's happening at the city. The walls are being rebuilt. The gates are being set. And people start to come back in. And what Nehemiah does is he starts to record genealogies. He starts to track people and names and, and families. And this person had this son and all this stuff. And all kinds of Hebraic, Hebraic names that I can't pronounce. And you're going to get a glimpse of that again this morning. Okay? And so Nehemiah does that. The people start coming back. He starts recording genealogies. There are some injustices and oppressions of the poor among the city. Some rich folks taking advantage of some poor folks. Nehemiah comes in and just leads in that. And he gets angry about that. He gets angry about the oppression of the poor. He gets angry about the injustices in the city. And he seeks to correct that. He seeks to correct that. And what he seeks to spread is hospitality and generosity and a caring for the poor is now prioritized and practiced once again among God's people. We see that the poor are not taken advantage of, but rather the poor... And those that really don't have much to their name are cared for and loved and welcomed in that city where primarily there was uh, 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 some who were taking advantage of them. He then leads this charge in establishing worship 
among God's people. And just a number of things. Prominence and attention to the scriptures are given. We get introduced to this guy named Ezra. Ezra's like the Bible study leader. He's the Bible guy. He's the Bible teacher. He gets a ton of, he gets a, a ton of uh, primary uh, uh, spots and, and places in their gathering. They begin to read the law out loud. They begin to respond to the law of God out loud. He's pulling out the scrolls. He's pulling out the Old Testament. The word of God has place and primacy again among God's people. Chapter 8 records a citywide gathering where the scriptures are read publicly and the people respond publicly to that. Again, we see that there's a gathering, a public public gathering for a national confession of sin in chapter 9. So not only are they reading from the scriptures, but they're gathering together as a people to confess their sins out loud in front of everybody. And they're confessing their sins nationally. Different leaders are speaking up and confessing their sin, acknowledging their humble position before God. God, we've sinned against you. God, we've sinned against you. We've, we, we, we've chased after false gods. We've defamed your name. God, forgive us. And we see this in chapter 9. Just some beautiful things in chapter 9. I just want to read just a few here. In chapter 9, they're confessing their sin, but they're also confessing and bringing back to remembrance the, the, the covenant love of God. His faithful, steadfast love. Just a, just a couple of things here. He goes in verse uh, 16 of chapter 9. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks. They did not obey your commandments. Did you see there? A lack of repentance, a hard-heartedness. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Look at this. But, but, but you are a God ready to forgive. <laughs> You're a God ready to forgive, willing, able, and ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. And over and over again, they retell the whole entire history of Israel up until this point, And they reiterate over and over again, the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the covenant commitment of God to receive back to himself a people who would come and repent. And they do this. They're rehearsing the gospel together. They're rehearsing the good news that though they're sinners, God loves them and is committed to them in his love and in his grace. I love that. I love it. All the Jewish festivals and feasts and celebrations were reestablished and practiced. This feast and that feast and this celebration and that celebration. You have the practicing of the Sabbath. God called his people to rest God called his people to take a break from their work. Why? Because work's not primary. Because work's not all there is to life. And you need to rest and you need to acknowledge, A, your inability, that you're weak and I'm strong. And you need to recognize that the work of your hands is not primary in this world. I'm primary. You need to stop and you need to pause and you need to rest. And formerly in the city, there was not Sabbath rest. There was not an acknowledgement of God's power and God's strength and our need for him. And we see Nehemiah giving his, giving his time to reestablishing the Sabbath principle there. The Sabbath is prioritized in practice. Also, we see worship, song, celebration at public gatherings is prioritized in practice. Musicians are gathered. Choirs are gathered. Just like we announce, a, a come and join the choir for Christmas Eve. Or come and join the band, Right? Um, to, to be a part of our worship gatherings, this worship event on Sundays. So too, Nehemiah gathers the musicians. He gathers the choir together. 
Through a godly leader named Nehemiah, God has gathered his people back to the city and he has restored them to himself. And God has been gracious and merciful to a rebellious and idolatrous people. And Nehemiah chapter 12, which is where we're going to land here for a minute, captures the joy and the celebration of God's goodness. It captures, it captures the response of God's people to God's mercy. All right? And so here you're going to hear me hack some names up, but please try to just weed through that and really get the essence of what we're seeing here in Nehemiah 12. Nehemiah 12, I think starting in um, uh, verse 27. Nehemiah starting in 27. And that the dedication of the wall. So we see here that where they're about to dedicate the wall, the wall's rebuilt. All right, they finally accomplish it. 52 weeks it took. They're going to dedicate the wall. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings. Celebration, thanksgivings, right? I want you guys to get that out of Nehemiah 12 here. Thanksgivings with singing, cymbals, harps, lyres. We see God's people back in Nehemiah's day was way ahead of this indie folk band, nine piece uh, uh, popular thing going on right now, right? Right, so like Arcade Fire and Mumford and Sons got nothing on God's people. They got obscure instruments. The band's like 25 deep, 30 deep, right? They're just going to town. Liars, what the heck is that, right? We don't don't use that instrument. It's actually kind of like a mini harp. You play it like a guitar anyways. Um, Cymbals, harps. We see this big thanksgiving, singing, celebration, dedication of the wall. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of, the, of the, those people. Also, Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Azmeth. Uh, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Notice this. The priests are coming. They're leading in the ceremony right? What they're doing is they're purifying themselves. They're purifying the people, the gates and the wall. What's going on here is an acknowledgement that we're not pure, that we're a sinful people, that we're a broken people. We need to be forgiven. We need to be cleansed. We need to be purified. And God, you're the one to do that. So there's this, there's this huge gathering where they're publicly confessing their need to be cleansed by God. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. Okay. Same thing, same thing. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks. Now this moment is huge. One is they gave thanks. Notice that four different times you're gonna see this word thanksgiving. But they bring two great choirs along with the leaders up onto the wall. What were some of the haters saying when they were building the wall? They were saying, man, look at this material. This wall is gonna fall down. If a fox were to go up in between the wall and run up on top of it, it would fall down. Now what we see is you have two giant choirs marching and standing on top of the wall. Clearly the wall was built well. This, this, this great moment and these, these haters are off in the distance just seeing the strength of this wall and what God had done among these people. One choir went to the south on the wall to the Dung Gate. That's not the best part of the neighborhood there in Jerusalem. And uh, after them, uh, Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests and, uh, and the sons with trumpets. This choir goes this way. These guys got trumpets, right? 
It's awesome. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, uh, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milalel, Gilalai, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. So we see people are gathered with musical instruments, choirs going this way, choirs going that way, priests are there leading. <clears throat> and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. He's got his ESV study Bible under his, uh, under his thing like this, big old Bible with like three ribbons in it, right? He's leading there. The word of God's there. At the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David and ascent to the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. That's one choir. The other choir of those who gave thanks again went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the gate of Yeshaniah and the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of hundred to the sheep gate. They came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me and the priests, Alakem, Meshanai, Minamin, uh, Micah, that guy, that guy, that guy with trumpets, right? I mean, I'm not even going to try. This is ridiculous. Um, and Shammai, Elizer, Uzi, Johanathan, uh, Elam, Izzer, and the singers sang with Jehezari as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices. Key in on this last one. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Are you getting the sense here of Nehemiah 12? Huge citywide celebration. Musical instruments, loud voices, choirs, obscure instruments, leaders, priests, sacrifices, huge roar. Have you ever been downtown in the city when a Cubs game's going on? Or gone past a, a, a large outdoor stadium when a game's going on? And you can just hear the cheer, right? You can just hear the roar coming from that place. That's exactly what was going on there. You could hear the joy and the roar of Jerusalem from far away. This huge Woodstock-esque city-wide worship gathering. What a joy. What a joy. And we see this, right? We see this kind of celebration. And they're gathered. They're gathered here for the celebration. All the people. Commenting on this scene in Nehemiah 12, the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible says this. This is the pattern of the gospel. This is the pattern of the gospel we see here in Nehemiah. God delivers, we gratefully respond. God acts in marvelous mercy, and we respond accordingly out of hearts transformed by grace. And just like they rehearsed Israel's history and confessed their sin and reminded themselves of the promises and covenant commitment to them of God, so we too, friends, we gather every single week to do the same thing. We, do, we gather every single week to do the same thing. Over and over again in the book of Nehemiah, there's been declaration, praise, worship, and thankfulness to God according to his mercy, his steadfast covenant love, his forgiveness, and his readiness to forgive. And you really see that come out in chapter 9. And the experience of God's people in Nehemiah is no different than our stories every single week. The experience of God's people in Nehemiah is no different than our experience as a people every single week. For all of us have lived lives this week of brokenness the results of the fall, 
that we're sinners by nature. We're prone to wander, as we just sang, and come thou found. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we've had things in our lives that are not submitted to the will and the kingship of God. And we come in here. And what do we do? We come in here not to beat the sheep or talk about how bad you are and leave it at that. No, we come in here what? To sing songs of God's grace. To sing songs of God's love. To sing songs of God's mercy. To hear of his covenant, steadfast love, commitment to us, even though we're a sinful people. And we come in here to rejoice, don't we? And celebrate the gospel. Are you guys with me this morning? This is what we do. This is what we do when we gather. And just as they gather to celebrate, so we gather to celebrate on Sunday. The day that Jesus walked out of a tomb. That's why we celebrate on Sunday. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He changed everything, including the day that we worship. Formerly, it was on Saturday. So we worship on Sundays because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And we come as a sinful people to celebrate the grace of God. A community formed by the gospel with a common experience of God's grace. We come in in here to acknowledge our humble position before God and our need to be cleansed and forgiven by him. Oftentimes, we'll spend time in confession, the quietness, right? Where we'll, we'll, we'll confess, maybe through a creed, maybe through a verse, maybe quietly by ourselves, but we'll confess our humble position for God. We're sinners. We've done things this week that are not according to your grace. They're not according to your will. And we've come in here in this place as a people publicly to confess that, right? We see the people doing this. The priest did that. They purified themselves. They purified the people. They purified the gate and the wall. And we come in here to be publicly reminded of his covenant commitment to us in Christ. His promise to never leave us, never forsake us. Oftentimes we'll partake of communion. We have the bread that we hold in one hand. It points us to the cross where Jesus in our place for our sin bore in his body the full penalty and the full weight of our sin. He was crushed in our place. And then we'll take the cup the cup which, which symbols the blood of Christ, which purchased a new covenant, a covenant commitment to us that says this, I will never leave you and never forsake you. And as far as the east is from the west, so far I will remove my sins from you and I will be your God and you will be my people. That is God's covenant commitment to us as a New Testament gospel-centered people, right? And we do that. And our sermons are centered on Christ and our sermons are centered on God's covenant commitment to us and his love for us. We come in here to sing songs about the cross. We come in here to sing the gospel, to sing of the love of Jesus, right? I loved it. Every single song that we sang, gospel-centered, centered on the love of God, centered on the mercy of God, centered on the, uh, on the faithfulness of God. We sing songs about the cross. We sing songs about God's love. We sing songs about his promises. We come in here to express our gratitude together. And just like they got out all these instruments, so we too have a band, Right? And just as the joy of Jerusalem was heard uh, from far away, so we too, we crank up the volume. Why? Because it's worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating. And I'm sorry if the music's too loud for you, but we're going to jam out. Why? Because God loved us and sent his son. So turn it up louder, right? The celebration and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. I wonder how many complaint cards we would get on a Sunday if we were jacked up that loud, right? The music was a little too loud this week, right? It's like nobody's filling out complaint cards here in Nehemiah 12. No one's whining about the the loudness of the music. Why? Because everyone's celebrating. Everyone's celebrating. We gather to hear God's word preached. Just as Ezra had a prominence and a place and the word of God had a prominence and a place at those gatherings, the scriptures hold a place of prominence at our gatherings. 
We set aside 45 minutes, 50 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer to preach God's word. Why? Because God's word is central. Because he's communicated to his people. Because he has told us about his love. He has told us about his son. He has told us about how to have a relationship with him. He has told us and promised us things that we need to hear as a fickle and feeble and wandering people. And he communicates to us through his word. And we speak back to him in song. It's this big conversation when we gather. Celebration, joy, thankfulness, singing, choirs. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And by way of application, as it relates for us, when we gather to worship, I would just ask you, take Nehemiah 12 and allow it to be a mirror of our gathering every single week. And I would ask you to critique us. How do you think we're doing? How do you think we're doing with this? How do you think we're doing as a people responding to the lavish and insane, ferocious love of God? How do you think we're doing in that? Right? You guys are back there. I'm up front jamming out, right? I, I rarely get a chance to get back there. Take Nehemiah. Allow it to be a mirror. Allow it to look back at us as a people, Cedar Lake Campus, when we gather on Sundays to worship. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with gathering and celebrating and rejoicing? One passage I want to bring to us this morning as it relates to our worship gatherings, and it's 1 Timothy 2.8. One thought, 1 Timothy 2.8, and this is for the men, all right? This is for the men, and I'm going to talk to us as men, okay? 1 Timothy 2.8 says this. Paul writes to a young pastor who's about to take over the church in Ephesus, and he writes this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul has very specific instruction for men as it relates to gathering. And he says this, I want the men to pray and I want the men to lift holy hands. Some of us are like, whoa, is it okay to lift hands and worship? Like there's this big debate on whether or not, like there's a Bible verse about it. Like it says right here, lift your hands up. Okay? Like 1 Timothy 2.8, men, lift your hands in the gathering. Pray out loud. And you see this prominence, you see this place, you see this, uh, you see this uh, participation from the men. Three things I have from 1 Timothy 2.8 for, uh, for us as men. Our men should be leading in our worship gatherings. Not just, I'm not talking about up front, but leading in prayers, leading in lifting hands. Men should be leading, setting the tone. Our men ought to be expressive. Notice what he says here. Pray, lift up hands. Men, we ought to be expressive. I've been over to your houses for some Bears games. A lot of expression. When we come here on Sunday, not so much. Okay? Not so much. <clears throat> Men ought to be expressive. Pray out loud, lifting up holy hands. And the last one is this. The presence of our men should be felt in our worship gatherings. I'm calling you men out. And I'm calling myself out too. Why? Because men lead. Men lead. Men lead in the home, men lead in the community, men lead in the church, men lead in the world. And what I see here in 1 Timothy is one of expression of men, leading in men, joy and celebration in men. A health of a church can be gauged by how expressive its men are. I really believe that. I really believe that. The health of a church can be gauged by how expressive and joyful its men are. Men, how are we doing with this? How are we doing I think Nehemiah 12 and 1 Timothy has a word for us today. Men, consider this word.
Consider the, consider the legacy that we have. Consider the leadership that we have. Consider the, the weight and the hold that we have in our homes, in our churches. And may we be a church where our men lead. I don't want you guys to force it. It needs to be from the heart. It needs to be, it needs to be like it said at the end of Nehemiah 12, the Lord caused them to have great joy. And maybe a step in this right direction for us as men is to go and pray. God, I don't have joy in you. God, I don't have a heart of celebration. I don't have a heart of thanksgiving. I don't have a heart of joy. But God, I know I see in your word you've called me to that. Change me. God, begin a journey in my life where I, where I discover this, this gospel in a deep level. And I begin to be expressive. Right? Now, I'm not throwing stones. Okay, and I know that sometimes we come in here with all kinds of different moods and circumstances. There's sometimes when I'm down in front, I just need to just kind of close my hands, be quiet, and be ministered to. Right? There are times for that. But what we see from Nehemiah 12 and 1 Timothy, that the men ought to be leading. Why? Because when you come in and you see the men going for it, and they're not acting macho, and they're not acting like they can't lift their hands, and they're, they're publicly displaying a love for God, a humble position before God, a need for him, a rejoicing in the gospel, I'm going to tell you what, people follow. When men lead, others follow. May we be like that, men, especially my Barnabas guys that are in here, right? Especially my Barnabas guys that are here. Let's be leaders. <clears throat> So that's worship gathered, and we get that, okay? Now, I will say this, because I think I have a little bit of time here, and this next section is a little bit short. One of the very discouraging things for me as we've been uh, doing this, well, I, I shouldn't say discouraging. I should just say something to just kind of talk about, is um, we've come here, the Cedar Lake campus, and we've started to use video um, as uh, one of our means to which we give um, our sermons. And you know what? I mean, after I became campus pastor, we're like, we're doing video sermons. I'm like, okay, like I never even really sat down to formulate an opinion. Like, what do I feel about this? It's just kind of like, hey, this is the way it is. For me, where I've landed, I don't care if it's live or it's video. I just want good preaching. I just want good, word-centered, gospel-centered, point me to Christ, challenge my heart by grace, be faithful to the scriptures. I don't care if it's live or on video. Because you can have a live guy and he's talking about moralism and never talks about Jesus and he's not confident in the scriptures, right? I don't want that, right? Give me a guy on video that's going to point me to Jesus. Just my personal two cents on that. But one of the things I've heard as people have been kind of grappling with this idea of, man, do I like this? Do I not like this or whatever? And what I would say to you is, you know, the scriptures don't speak to it. So I can't come down with a law as to, hey, this is how you should view video preaching. I would say if you don't care for it, cool. I'm not going to argue with you on that. Okay, I'm not going to like point you to a verse in that. And some of you are like, eh, I can give it or take it. But some of the things that I've heard as I've talked to people is, you know, the, video, the sermons on video, I might as well just stay home and just watch a sermon from my, from my bed. I'm going to go to Bedside Baptist with pastor sheets. I'm going to pull up the, uh, I'm going to pull up the, uh, um, I'm going I'm I'm to pull up a, a video sermon. I'm going to rock it out with breakfast in bed, get my coffee, not get out of my pajamas. And I'm going to go to church there. Really? Can you do Nehemiah 12 like that? Can Nehemiah 12 happen with that kind of view of the gathering? And, what, and, and I think what a good teaching point for us is this, that the word of God, albeit central, is not the totality of what God has called his people to do when they gather. 
And there are all kinds of elements. There are all kinds of other responses that God has called his people to do. Singing, confessing sin, encouraging one another, celebration, joy. I get encouraged when I look around and see other people celebrating. You guys minister to me with your joy in the gospel. And God has called his people to gather and to do these things. And don't, don't, don't look at the gathering of the people of God and just think that it's all about just the sermon or how the sermon's delivered. This is about the people of God who have been called out of the world by God, saved by grace, called to respond and gather to God's grace and sing and celebrate and hear God's word together. Just my two cents, okay? It's not even in my notes. I didn't even plan on talking about that, okay? So there you go. I just felt like we, I needed to say that. Um, so we also recognize that when we gather, worship's not just a gathered event. It's not just a gathered event. We're called to ga- we're called to worship when we gather, but we're also called to a scattered lifestyle of worship, right? We're also called to be worshipers of God who rejoice and are thankful when we scatter as well. We recognize that worship is not confined to a certain place or a certain time, but rather we are a people called to worship whether we eat or drink. We should do excuse me, we should do all to the glory of God, right? So we just got done with our first John series, right? And what was John's main point? John's main point was this. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, that's going to bear out in certain aspects and contexts in your life. And so when, we, when we're a Christian, only when we gather and we're not Christians and we don't worship and we don't have joy and we're not thankful and we don't love God and we don't submit to God as king, when we leave this place, that's called being a hypocrite. When worship is just confined to a gathering and it's not bleeding out into a life that worships when we scatter, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. God has called us to worship when we both gather and when we scatter. So worship's not just a gathered event. It is a scattered lifestyle as well. And what we celebrate and sing of on Sunday is true for us on Monday through Saturday as well. We're called to be worshipers. Right? Jesus said in John 4, I'm seeking a time, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to a time when people will worship me in spirit and in truth. This lady says, where should we worship? Over in this mountain, over in this place. And Jesus says, listen, there's going to come a time and a place where those places are going to be gone. And people who know me are going to worship me in spirit and in truth, gathered and scattered. So there's two verses I want to help us bring out this scattered lifestyle of worship. So 1 Thessalonians 5, we've already read that. You already were there. So let me just say that again. Rejoice always and in all contexts. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, all contexts, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, notice that in 1 Thessalonians 5. Underline that. In Christ. In Christ. There's there's an important point we're going to bring out here. And then Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, which I think we have on the... uh, um, the, the screen for us. I don't even know if we're keeping up here on notes. There we go. Okay, Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. So we see this, okay? So this is, we're going we're gonna to use this to kind of bring out this idea of, of worshiping when we scatter. And do not get drunk with wine. Don't get drunk with wine. Don't let alcohol dominate you, lead you, control you, okay? Don't let wine control you. Don't let alcohol dominate you, for that is debauchery. It's sin, it's breaking a commandment, it grieves God's heart. But rather, be controlled and led by and filled by the Spirit. 
So Paul says, don't be controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. And he just happens to mention wine here, which I think would be a fitting word for all of us. Don't be, don't be controlled, don't be led by, don't be filled by wine, but rather be filled by, led by, controlled by the Spirit. And so what does it look like when the people of God who are indwelt by the Spirit of God allow the Spirit to have control in their lives? When they gather and when they scatter, it looks like this. Addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. There it is again, that little phrase, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar to 1 Thessalonians 5. What does it look like when a people are led by the Spirit? There's songs, there's singing, there's rejoicing, there's celebration. Okay, this is, we are way beyond worship style arguments right now. We're not even talking about being gathered in a church. We're talking about being scattered as the church and the response of God's people in their heart. This is a heart posture that Paul's talking about here for his people. What do we notice here? There's a community aspect. We're hanging out with others who are filled by the Spirit too. We're speaking to one another like this. Our conversations and our relationships, there's a tone of celebration. There's a tone of thankfulness. There's a tone of song that's there. Now, this doesn't mean that we're like walking around like some play on Broadway or Chicago, like we're singing to one another, like, hello, Steve, good morning. You know, like, I'm not, we're not, it's not talking about that. I think what we're talking about here is a heart attitude, a heart posture, right? There ought to be a joy and a song in the heart of God's people. <clears throat> we're making melody to the Lord in our hearts. Notice the focus on the hearts, not just the lips right? Jesus said of the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We do not want hypocritical, pharisaical worship where we just let things come out of our mouth when we gather on Sunday and when we leave, when we scatter, it's nowhere to be found. That's hypocrisy. That's pharisaical. That's not the gospel. We don't want that. We want to be dominated by the gospel in whatever context that we're in, dominated by the love of Christ giving thanks always and for everything to God. Now notice what the key is in both of these verses. It's this, Christ. Christ is the key. Christ is the key. How do you give thanks for all things and in all circumstances? If you're the Thessalonians, how can Paul, with integrity to a a hurting, um, persecuted people who he knows are going through a hard, hard time. How can he tell them? And then look them in the face afterwards and tell them, rejoice always. Rejoice? Rejoice? Dude, we're getting persecuted. We're getting marginalized. Some of us are being physically assaulted. Paul himself was roughed up, thrown in jail, and shoved out of the city there in Thessalonica. Things are not good. Circumstances are not going well at all. How can you tell me to rejoice always? Notice the key in Christ. In Christ, notice the key in Ephesians. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ changes everything. And just as God's covenant steadfast love and his redemption and rescuing of his people, the exodus there was the main focus of their celebration in Nehemiah 12, so too God later on would do a different rescue. 
he would, he, would, he would bring a people out of a different kind of slavery, a slavery to sin. And Jesus would rescue a people, not through parting the sea and bringing them out of slavery, but he himself would go to the cross and die for their sins to bring them out of a bondage of, of slavery to sin and to forgive their sin. And so just as God's people in Nehemiah 12 celebrated God's covenant and steadfast love, we too look to the cross as God's covenant people and celebrate his love for us there. In Christ, Christ is the key. Circumstances, guys, up and down. I just talked to one guy in the back. Just had surgery on his eye. His eye is hurting bad. And his brother-in-law just died this last week. I would say that according to his circumstances, there would not be reason for rejoicing. But friend, I want to tell you in the gospel, you can have hands raised and sing loud to God today because of Christ. Because of Christ. And some of us in here, some things are going really well. Some of us in here, they're not going well at all. Very similar to Thessalonica. Very similar to that church there. Circumstances are, are causing us to be frustrated and they're difficult. So how can we do this? The key is Christ. And the reason we rejoice is Christ. And Christ is the reason we're thankful because Christ is eternal. His promises endure. Christ is permanent. I want to just read to you guys uh, Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39. And just, I, I want to just let these words of scripture just minister to your heart this morning. No matter what circumstance we're in. What then, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You got anybody that's throwing stones at you right now? You got anybody that's, you got anybody that's uh, uh, um, talking about you behind your back? You got a boss that's just committed to not advancing you in your job? You got a neighbor that's just a constant pain in the side, right? You got someone that's just, you got someone that's just against you. Do you? Do you have an enemy? Do you have someone who's against you? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're in Romans 8 verse 31, by the way. I'm sorry about that. I don't have it up on the screen for you. Romans 8, 31. Notice what he says here. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you here and you're struggling with a need? You have a need. It might be material. It might be financial. It might be spiritual. It might be relational. Paul says, how can we look at the cross where God gave us his best He gave us his son. He did not withhold his son from us, but freely gave him to us. How will he not also along with Christ freely give us all things? You don't think God's in the business of meeting needs? He met our greatest need, our sin need on the cross, and he sent the Savior. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You got someone who's talking about you behind your back? You got someone that's spreading lies about you? You got someone who's slandering you in the workplace, in your family? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against those who are Christ? Who? It's God who justifies. It's God's word about you that's final. Not that person's word. Not that enemy's word. Not that coworker's word. Not that family member's word. Now, we might need to be humble and listen to that and see if there's something that we need to receive there. And maybe we can humbly repent and change if there's some truth there. But if there's slander and someone's against us and someone's bringing a charge, who's going to bring a charge against God elect? God is one who justified. Who condemns? Who can condemn us? Christ has been condemned for us. Jesus is the one who's died. More than that, he was raised. He was raised. You struggling physically here? 
You're struggling with a body that's breaking down. You're struggling with the effects of getting old, right? You're struggling with that? Friend, Jesus walked out of a tomb in the first century, somewhere in the Middle East, with a, with a glorified, renewed body. And he promised it to be a first fruits of the ones who are going to come. And one day you're going to receive a body like that too. Rejoice, friend. Rejoice. Because God overcame this world. God overcame the effects of sin in this world and promises to us reconciliation and a renewed, reconciled body at that in the end. Who's at the right hand of God? Who's interceding for us? You struggling with relationship? You struggling with, with, with finding a friend, someone who's got your back, someone who will listen to you? Are you relationally lonely? Are you just lacking someone in your life to love you and care for you and listen to you? Are you poor relationally here this morning? Look at what it says. Who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us? Christ, he's there. And he's called in Hebrews 4 a sympathetic savior, someone that we can go to, talk to, rely on, bring prayers, concerns, and he's promised he'll never leave us and never forsake us. What's gonna separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, hunger, nakedness, danger, sword? Is there something that can separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, just in case he didn't include everything in that just description right there, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you, will your own sin separate you from Christ? Will your own failings this last week separate you from Christ? No. No. God knew exactly the kind of people we were when he joined himself to us. God demonstrated his love to us on this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you at your worst. Do you think that your sin this last week is going to keep his heart and his love from you? That didn't matter in the first place, and it certainly isn't going to matter now. And he sent his son to die and be sufficient for it. And so as sinners, we humble ourselves. God's grace teaches us to not want our sin anymore. And we come to him with arms open wide, and he's ready to forgive. I love that phrase in Nehemiah, the readiness and willingness of God to forgive. What can separate you, friends? Nothing And whether we gather or whether we scatter, the central piece is Christ. The thing that we feast our hearts and our minds on is Christ. He is permanent. He is constant. He is eternal. His promises are true. He's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. I'm over my time. Just one last thing. Sometimes our rejoicing and our thankfulness don't sound like a boy band. It sounds more like the blues. Okay? So don't get me wrong when I'm talking about rejoicing and thankfulness that you think you come in here snapping your fingers with a song and a dance and everything's cool and every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. No. And this is where the lamenting psalms are so helpful for us because we see rejoicing and thankfulness and trust in God in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of tears. And sometimes our rejoicing and sometimes our thankfulness looks like we got tears on our eyes and a sorrowness in our heart. And I love, the, I love the lamenting psalms because it helps me see that not every day is a boy band. Sometimes it's the blues. Okay? So uh, be an encouragement to you in that. And Nehemiah is a great example for us in chapter 1. Right? What was his circumstance? Hearing of the wall. 
the breaking down of the wall, his heart for the people, and he mourned. But if you look at chapter one in his prayer, there's praise there, there's thanksgiving there, there's celebration there. The gospel is powerful enough to cause us all to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. And everything that we do in the Christian life is out of a response of gratitude because of God's grace and God's mercy. So today we're going to go hand out uh, uh, Thanksgiving meals to over 40 families in Cedar Lake and in Lowell. And just like gratitude and thankfulness um, for God and His grace causes us to celebrate and do all that we do, so too the mission that God has called His church to be about, about gratitude and thankfulness ought to be uh, moving us and, and shoving us and directing us in that as well. And so we're handing out these baskets of food. We're handing out these groceries. After second service, we're going to eat a little bit of food and go out. And we're going to go bless some people in our neighborhood and in our community with food. And we wrote a small little card on the inside, along with on the back, just says the name of our church and our, our service times. And here's what, here's what we wrote on the back of the card. Happy Thanksgiving. We want you to know that it was a joy for our Bethel family to be able to bless your family this holiday season. These groceries are simply an expression of our thankfulness to God who has been so good and gracious to us through Jesus. We hope that you have a wonderful day sharing food, making memories with family and friends, grace and peace. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy motivates his people, whether we're gathered or scattered, scattered to love him personally or scattered to be on mission. Thankfulness and gratitude drive God's people in all things because of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good.